Welcome to Out of the Lab, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs who've taken research out of the lab and built it into a company that's serving the world. These entrepreneurs are heroes, and the planet needs more of them. So tune in, learn from their successes and failures, and get inspired. Visit Bountiful.org to join our community and realize your power to save the world. Hello and welcome to Out of the Lab. I'm your host, Max Finder. Today's guest is Professor Donald Sadaway. He's a professor of material science and engineering at MIT. Uh, he's the author of over 180 scientific papers and an inventor on 35 U.S. patents. Most of his research is directed towards batteries for grid-scale storage uh, and environmentally sound metals extraction technologies. Uh, a few of his inventions have become spin-out companies uh, invested by Bill Gates, for instance, and, and, and other major environmental investors. Um, he, he's founded four companies, and one of them is called Ambry. It's grid-scale energy storage. Boston Metal uh, is a cl- uh, more environmentally friendly way to manufacture metals. Um, Avanti Battery is his new startup, and he his his course his his first year chemistry course is actually uh, available on MIT Open Courseware, and it's one of the most viewed chemistry courses. There's 35 lectures or something like that. That's how Bill Gates originally found Professor Sadaway was he was watching his chemistry lectures. Um, it, it was one of the most it's the most popular freshman course I think at MIT. Uh, and they recorded it because there were so many people that wanted to attend it that they needed to put it on video and, and, and screen it in overflow rooms. And so that's how Bill Gates ended up having access to this course and meeting him and funding the, the company. It's a really cool story. Um, he also, Don, Professor Sadaway gave a TED talk that's been viewed like 3 million times or something like that. Um, a lot of it's about the the grid-scale energy storage liquid metal battery that he invented, um, but at the same time, it's talking about how he invents inventors. Uh, so how he mentors young uh, grad students and postdocs. Um, a lot of these people have gone on to be involved in his companies, either as CTO or or in other executive roles. Um, he's extremely impressive, and he's inventing uh, the solutions to global problems. Um, I learned a lot about, you know, thinking from first principles, knowing your limitations, asking the right questions, um, thinking about environmental impact and materials that you might use. You know, he, he, he has a really famous expression that if you want to make something as cheap as dirt, then use dirt. Um, I'm paraphrasing. He says it even better in, in the episode. Um, and you know, he, he in 2012 he was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He's super impressive, a ton of knowledge, generating a ton of value for our society, uh, mentoring tons and tons of people that are going to go on to be scientific and entrepreneurial and business leaders of of the future. And so it was really just a pleasure to speak with him. In, enjoy the episode. I learned a ton, and and I'm sure you will too. Visit bountiful.work to join our community and sign up for early access to our platform. And thank you. Enjoy the episode. Here it is. Professor, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, So I want to start by asking you a little bit about what you've said, how there are no more corporate labs. I mean, 50 years ago, there was Bell Labs and and all of these corporate labs that invested so much money in R&D. That's that's gone away. And, and so you've said over and over again, the future of R&D is from universities. You, you, I, I, can you speak a little bit about that and, and the potential that universities have for inventing our future? Yeah, so, you know, if you think back uh, say, uh, 50, 75 years ago, uh, you know, companies like GE had uh, massive labs up in Schenectady, uh, all the big uh, metals companies, US Steel, uh, Inland Steel, uh, Alcoa Labs, I visited in 1980. They had uh, 1,200 people at this campus uh, outside of Pittsburgh. Um, uh, Canacock Copper had big labs in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. 
Um, but almost all of that's gone. Um, so if, if you want innovation, for example, in, in steel, where's it going to come from? If, if, if the, the remaining laboratories are reduced to basically firefighting for problems that are occurring in the existing production facilities. Um, the Bell Labs, yeah, Bell Labs is a, a fantastic place where people were able to, to grow. They didn't have to just work on uh, improvements to the telephone system. Um, so uh, what's left? Where, where are the innovation centers? Uh, that's going to be in the, in the university. Um, and, and there have been uh, many uh, inventions that have come out of universities that have led to uh, spin-ups and eventually new companies. Um, and so it, it's, it's going to be driven by the uh, nature of the funding, because if, if, the, if you take a look at the, the power of the American university system, the intellectual horsepower there, it's, it's unmatched anywhere else uh, in the world. Um, but it's, it, it's, it pivots on the, uh, the availability of funding. If, if the funding from the NSF, from the, the DOE, and so on, uh, becomes overly prescriptive, then um, you, you leave out the possibility of surprise. Um, if, if everybody is told that they must work on long duration energy storage using flow batteries, uh, that's, don't be surprised that, that you don't see breakthroughs. So, uh, so I, I say that the intellectual horsepower is there uh, in the university. Um, and uh, I just, uh, with the cautionary uh, comment, and um, make sure that the funding doesn't come with uh, too, too tightly positioned guardrails. On that note, I mean, can you speak a bit about the difference, I guess, between translational and just general research? I mean, it, it sounds like you're saying that a lot of the breakthroughs and the innovations come from um, professors and inventors that are able to roam, whereas these prescriptive or sponsored research initiatives might even be too narrowing, which would probably fall more in the translational research category, correct? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably correct. Um, but the, the, the labeling is, is a little bit uh, unclear to me. Uh, I, I just think that the, the statement holds that uh, you, you want to have, um, you know, I would uh, like to uh, urge people to uh, go back to late 2009 when uh, ARPA-E was funded. This is the Advanced Research Project Agency branch of the Department of Energy. And that was a golden moment because Stephen Chu was Secretary of Energy and uh, had the authority to go ahead and Established ARPA-E, which, which actually was, was recommended under the previous administration when Sam Bogman was the Secretary of Energy, and they wanted it to, uh, to establish ARPA-E, but the Congress wouldn't fund it. Uh, but then with uh, the election of President Obama and the appointment of Stephen Chu, they, they got the funding. And I remember the first round, I was the first round of ARPA-E winner myself. And, uh, the, the, uh, the call was for um, bold, imaginative uh, projects, uh, the kind of which uh, traditionally industry wouldn't fund, uh, government wouldn't fund. And to the reviewers, the directions were, uh, do not consider likelihood of success. Instead, consider potential impact if successful. And Arun Majunga, who was the first director of RPD, uh, he came to MIT shortly thereafter and uh, gave a presentation. And he said, of the 37 awards that we've made, he says the majority of them are gonna fail, but the few that succeed will be game changers. Well, that's all gone now. Uh, the, now it's likelihood of success is, is one of the factors. And so uh, I, 
I, I would uh, uh, invite uh, the uh, administration to uh, be a little bit uh, less prescriptive and uh, invite people to bring their wild ideas. Now, we're not going to fund science fiction. Uh, no perpetual motion machines need a plot, but boy, let's 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 look at uh, how we can innovate by uh, by breaking inside the traditional barriers. And so, some something that it, first of all, that's really um, interesting to 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 value impact over likelihood of succeeding. Um, you talk a lot about how uh, championing professors and their capability to invent the future. And you talk about inventing inventors. Um, first of all, actually, before I get into that, could, do you feel connected to Professor Volta at all, the inventor of the battery? I mean, I know you mentioned him quite a lot. Um, is it just because you've really focused on batteries or is, it, is, is there something deeper there that you, you feel connected to him about? Well, I think that uh, the, the whole idea of um, uh, doing something that's uh, radically different. I mean, Volta, people, people think of Volta correctly as uh, the, the inventor of the, of the battery. Uh, what, they, what they fail uh, to, to appreciate, and uh, it's not their fault, I think, I think the, the science writers have, have failed to convey this is that uh, with Volta, we get not only the battery, but we get the modern era with electricity. Because, you know, prior to Volta, th there was the term electricity. It, it was already used in the 1600s, but it meant static electricity. It, it, it meant uh, what you could do with, uh, if you took some amber and you rubbed it with uh, some wool, and then you had a straw sitting on a, a beaker or containing uh, in, in the water. And by moving the uh, amber piece that had been uh, rubbed, you could move the straw. And, and this was absolutely mysterious because in the 1600s, the notion that you could uh, move something without physical contact, in other words, action at a distance, this was, this was magic, but that was the extent to which uh, electricity existed. It was static electricity, and, and if you moved the, the object that had been uh, charged, then you could, with that, move another object that was in close proximity. But with Volta, for the first time, we get electrons in motion. And, you know, within, within 10 years of the invention of the battery, people were uh, applying electricity to uh, to actually conduct electroplating operations, and that that all happened without venture uh, mentoring or uh, innovation hubs or any of that stuff. People they just saw this thing and said, "Hey, we can do do things with it." So uh, I think that uh, I have a tremendous respect for Volta because everything we're having this conversation thanks to electricity and uh, electrons in motion were first given to us by by Volta and then later on uh, there were some, some physicists that said well electrons in motion uh, th th they, they detected uh, a magnetic field and they said wow electrons in motion can generate a magnetic field and then somebody else comes along and says well if I have a conductor just sitting there and I have a magnetic field in motion, can that generate electrons in motion? And that's the birth of the dynamo. And then, you know, here we are. It all starts with Volta. And you also talk about um, these these 22-year-old young inventors that invented the aluminum smelting process, right? Um, so it seems like you really do see a lot of potential in these young um, scientists. And, and so you like to talk about inventing inventors. Um, and, and, you know, if you have an idea, you then decide to, and it seems promising, you hire a student. I mean, can you talk about 
and, and I'd like to get more into the, the mentorship category uh, of, of what you do, but maybe you could speak a little bit about how you invent inventors. Well, I think it's uh, by um, uh, helping them unlock uh, themselves. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't use the, the, the vessel model of education where the student is an empty vessel and the professor has the water and pours the water and fills up the vessel and the student leaves, you know, having been filled with all of this knowledge. Um, because that's that's memorization of facts. And, and of course, you have to know, know some things. You, you can't just say, well, I can look it up. Uh, you have to have a few things in near-term memory. Um, but uh, the, the whole business of inventing inventors is, is through the, the act of uh, invention. So they, you, I take them along uh, on a journey. And uh, so we're working on, for example, the, in the TED Talk, there was the conversation about the, the liquid metal battery. And I have a team of about 20 people, postdocs, graduate students, and even some undergraduates. And uh, uh, just the whole operation of that, you know, how, how I formulated the problem, how I, how I got them to, to see the problem uh, from my perspective, um, and, then, and then turn them loose um, and you know, encourage them, uh, allow them to, to, to try things, they, they might fail. Um, but what we learn from the failure, um, empowerment, uh, building of uh, self-assurance, self-confidence. Um, these are all uh, ingredients, and and that's that's why I continue to uh, to keep with me. And uh, out of that comes um, two things: you get the results of the research, and then you get the the, the emergent professional. Um, and and finally, I guess the, the the other thing is that I say that. Okay, so, so we worked hard on this uh, liquid metal battery and we've got some patents now, we've got some uh, uh, research publications, some of them in the, in the most prestigious journals on the planet. But you realize that in addition to the invention of liquid metal battery, that this exercise has been a metaphor. It's a metaphor for, for inventing. So I, I like to say that, you know, if you, if you go back to uh, before World War II and engineering education was uh, just going through the, the past uh, lessons. So that there would be these fat books, uh, chemical engineer's handbook, mechanical engineer's handbook, electrical engineer's handbook, and the university professors were all uh, professional engineers. And the students would just go from page one to the, to the end of the book. And, it was almost like learning to, to play a musical instrument. You, you get the writings of previous composers and you learn to play them in, in, in a setting level of difficulty. And many people get to Carnegie Hall and, and perform, but uh, it's not about the performance, it's about who's going to be the next writer. And, um, and so after World War II, the, the paradigm shifted so that now we teach people the fundamentals so we, we learned from World War II that um, modern engineering is based in modern science. And so that means engineering education is now a science education uh, migrating towards applied science. And so, uh, so I say that a, a good education teaches you to solve problems. A better education teaches you the methodology for solving problems. But I want to go beyond that. I want the great education, which teaches you the methodology for developing methodologies. And, and so, and, right. And you're, you're teaching these people how to think and how to invent and how to come up with even the new methodologies for doing things. And so if you had to think about some of the qualities that, that some of the best um, grad students or postdocs have even the ones that that rise to become the CTOs of some of the spinoffs that you've been involved in. I mean, what are some of those unifying characteristics that that people should think about trying to hone and 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 develop in themselves? I think it's uh, an irrepressible 
um, desire uh, to to uh, accomplish something with a higher sense of purpose. I mean, the, the people that came to work on the liquid metal battery, uh, they, they wanted to change the world. And with that kind of passion and uh, young idealism, all I got to do is just, just point them in the right direction and then turn them loose. They're, they're going to be fine. You know, they're curious. Um, I encourage them to be a little bit uh, playful. Uh, don't edit yourself. Uh, blurt out the most ridiculous ideas. And we don't uh, you know, shut anybody down. Um, and so, so those are all, all, all really good uh, qualities. And, and I like this idea of when you turn the student loose or students loose on the idea. I guess I'm interested to know how you know that an idea of yours is ready for a student to, to unleash, you know, your army of, or your army of students on that idea to go nuts. And like, is there a feeling that you have or, or, or how do you know when it's ready for that stage of the process? Well, uh, you know, everything pivots on the uh, formulation of the question. So, so you, you start with there's a, there's a pressing need, an unmet need out there. So, for example, grid level storage. If you go back to, say, 2005, you know, people were talking about putting lithium ion batteries on the grid. And I said, this is stupid. Um, it's far too costly and it's, uh, it's not safe. Um, so I started thinking, you know, what's, what's something that's going to be big and cheap and on and eventually I came up with this idea for the predecessor to the liquid metal battery. And um, I, I just uh, assessed it in terms of if successful, would this thing make a difference? Um, and I considered it would be. So now, Who's going to do the work? We got, got to get people in the lab. We're going to try things. We've got to break this down into its constituent um, um, acts uh, of research and uh, staff up and away we go. So I, I, I knew from the beginning that I had an idea that was developed far enough along that I could uh, uh, foretell that uh, if this thing pans out, it's going to be uh, useful. It's going to be deployed. So how do I get from here to there? Students. And how many of these ideas do you have that you're working on at any given time? And I guess I'm also curious just in the process of, of you noodling on these ideas. I mean, is it stuff that comes to you in the shower because you've planted the seed properly or do you set aside and allocate time to think about how to solve these, these large problems? Because it sounds like it takes years for you to come up with a potential solution that can then be worked um, by this, these armies of students. And so what's the process there and how many of the, the, the ideas do you have you know, rattling around at any given time? Uh, the process is to, uh, you know, just as, as you're going through your, your uh, daily life, uh, you, you encounter things that pique your interest and uh, you say, well, there's, there's, there's a known that uh, need here. And, uh, and then in the meantime, there's also what I'm capable of. I mean, I don't touch the life sciences. You know, it's uh, Clint Eastwood playing Dirty Harry says in one of the one of the episodes, a uh, man's got to know his limitations. And uh, so I don't touch the life sciences. I, I'm glad I'm glad there are people out there who are working in the life sciences, but it's not me. So uh, uh, I I see the intersection of uh, uh, a plurality of major problems, uh, many of them out of the sector of deep decarbonization, um, you know, climate change mitigation, obviously energy, um, and the intersection of all of that and uh, what I call extreme electrochemistry. So uh, everything I look at, I, I, I say, 
can I do, is there an electrochemical response to this? Because if there is, I'm there. I'll work on it. And, um, and so with that as sort of the backdrop, um, I don't sit down and say, okay, from uh, 10.30 to 11.15 today, I'm going to think about uh, possible solutions. No, it, it could be in the shower. It could be riding from the, the Avanti labs to uh, back home on my Vespa motor scooter. I don't know, I don't know where the idea is going to come from, but um, then when it does, then I document it and start saying, okay, but what's, how, how, how do we, how do we bring this to reality? And something that stood out for me in one of your lectures is, is this idea of using um, materials that are of the most common elements in, in the earth's crust. Is that a place for people to start looking for solutions or is that sort of a secondary um, thing that people should pay attention to when they're thinking about materials that would go into one of these solutions? Like, could somebody looking for a solution say, okay, here are the, you know, 15 elements that are the most common in the earth's crust. Perhaps I can start trying to solve problems with these common materials. Maybe you could speak a bit about that. Yeah, well, so for uh, many of these uh, problems that I'm attacking, um, they involve society. And so cost is uh, a key factor. So um, I, I, I've coined the term cost-informed discovery. Now, the classical model of uh, research at the university is invent the coolest chemistry and um, you know, get 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 published in the, in the uh, most uh, notable journals, build your career, uh, and then if there is a possibility of a, a startup, you know, spin it out and let let the people there chase down the cost curve. And uh, and I say, but if, if you're talking about competing for something like energy storage against uh, deeply entrenched, uh, heavily subsidized fossil fuels, you. You can't do that. You you got to start thinking about costs on day one, not day one thousand and one. So so how are you going to make something that is that is cost effective and better? Uh, you have to factor in, among other things, uh, the materials of construction. And so that's that's why I say if you want to make something dirt cheap, then make it out of dirt, and preferably dirt that's locally sourced. That way you have a secure supply chain. It's one thing that the pandemic has taught us is that um, uh, globalization isn't uh, all uh, all advantageous. There are some disadvantages to having uh, key components of your most critical uh, infrastructure arriving from halfway around the world. Um, so the in, in certain applications. I mean, if you're building something to a NASA price point, you, you, you can grab anything you want on a periodic table. But if you're building something that's going to have to go into a, into a car and you want that car to be competitive with the, the legacy automobile with the internal combustion engine, then yeah, you're going to be confined to uh, a, a subset. I mean, I I say if you, if you, if you want to invent something that's going to be widely applicable, and by the way, applicable in the developing world. I mean, we, you're not going to go into the developing world with first world solutions. So how are you going to do that? When you go in the backyard in the developing world, take a shovel full of dirt, put it on the lab bench and tell your people, whatever solution you invent, the components have to come out of this pile of dirt. And that becomes your boundary conditions. And boy, you're going to start seeing people thinking the way they never thought before. So. That's, that's my take on uh, subset of the periodic table. And, and I really like that um, idea of things that researchers and grad students should be paying attention to as like on day one, not day 1001. Are there other things, uh, you know, apart from cost of materials, uh, I guess, and cost of, you know, production and manufacturing, are there other things that you think or you would advise um, young scientists and entrepreneurs to be paying attention to on day one as opposed to day 1001? 
Yeah, what, what, there's been a, a big change, uh, say, in the last 10 years. Uh, now people, you, you see it with respect to uh, the pervasive lithium-ion battery. People are starting to ask tough questions about uh, ethical sourcing. You've got uh, cobalt, uh, cobalt oxide is one of the components of the lithium-ion battery. It's a key constituent of the positive electrode in two-thirds of the world's uh, cobalt comes from uh, Congo, um, and there are some problems there with respect to uh, mining of, uh, of uh, cobalt, uh, exploitation of children, and so on and so forth. So people are asking questions about how is this sourced? Um, and the second question people are asking is, uh, what about end of, uh, end of life? What happens? Is this just going into landfill or is it, uh, is it recyclable? Can it be reused? So uh, that, that gets into not only the materials, but it goes to your other point about uh, the manufacturing. Uh, it, it's one thing to, to make it, but can it be disassembled? Can it be reused? Perhaps it can be repurposed. Maybe it doesn't come back as a, as a battery. Maybe it comes back in, in some other form. But, those questions are being asked, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, a new battery right now. And one of the things that I've, I've been mindful of is uh, um, how, how does it how does it stack up against a lithium ion in terms of uh, recyclability? Uh, so, yeah, the, the, there are many more uh, considerations that uh, young people are being. Uh, uh, advice to take under consideration. And, and so if you had to um, think about, you know, how you know when a technology coming out of your lab is ready for spinoff or ready for prime time. I mean, I, I assume there, if you drill down, there are a few kind of micro stages within that, but how do you know when something is ready to be spun off or when, when some, when, you know, piece of research is, is good enough um, to start shifting it towards a commercialization effort, as opposed to a research effort? Once you've, once you've done enough research that uh, you're confident that, uh, uh, that the science is sound and uh, you know enough about um, what the, the say first generation product uh, will look like, uh, then it's time. And uh, the, because you don't say you don't stay on campus and continue to do more and more research uh, if you already know that you could build the first generation battery of this chemistry. But the question that remains is, uh, will it scale? Because when you're when you're doing the basic research, you just want to demonstrate that the fundamentals of the electrochemistry works, for example, that this thing will charge and discharge and uh, you get some performance parameters that uh, allow you to think about uh, how it would compare with the, the legacy uh, battery technology. But um, you, you really don't know if it's, if it's going to work uh, in in a, in a format that will power devices that are going to rely on this. So for that, you have to you go off campus because you're going to be working at scale that um, is uh, is greater than what the campus can handle. And quite frankly, the the, the nature of the work isn't uh, the kind that would end up in a research publication or a thesis. And so it, it's probably inappropriate to be done on campus. So there's a push and a pull. And are there other things, so thinking about production, thinking about, you know, ethical supply, thinking about recycling and end of life. Um, if we think about advising grad students and researchers on, well, let me say that it, it seems that people more and more in vogue are, are wanting to create new pieces of intellectual property and patent things and, and create startups. It's, it's a bit different maybe, and maybe you can speak to this in the, than, than it was in the last maybe 20 years where people were more focused on publishing papers um, and, and just doing research. Uh, and so 
how, what are some other things that grad students and researchers should pay attention to if they are thinking about and, and shifting their attention to commercialization um, as, as a trajectory that they want to be on, patenting and things like that? Well, I think it, it, it gets back to the asking the right questions. And um, when, you, when you pose the question correctly, uh, that will give you a higher likelihood that you will uh, approach uh, the, the, the trajectory to a solution in a, in a successful manner. And um, the, the, the two are not uh, at cross purposes. I mean, you can do really good fundamental work, end up publishing the archival literature, and derive uh, something that is uh, patentable uh, that can ultimately lead to the formation of a, of a startup. So th th there's, uh, I, I don't see these things as you choose one over another, one compromises the other. Yeah, there, there can be abuses uh, in the system, but, um, but that, that's, that's due to a f uh, failure of character. Uh, but uh, people who have a, a higher sense of purpose and want to do something that will make a difference in the world and say uh, decarbonization can be working on a, on a technology and uh, develop the IP and eventually go to a startup and uh, it, it, it's all uh, correct. And, and it seems like, so the, I think it seems like the majority of the work you've done has been at MIT and the spinoffs that you've created have come out of your lab at MIT. Um, is there something that's unique to MIT that has uh, fostered this with, with, within you and within your lab? And, and, and if you had, you know, what are some of the key elements that maybe we could even try to extrapolate to other um, universities and, and, and research institutions? Um, well, that's a tough one, uh, because in order for me to really answer with uh, uh, correct background information, I would have had to have spent some time at other universities in, in, a, in a professorial role to be able to uh, make the contrast comparison. Uh, but I'll just take a stab at it and <laughs> say, uh, MIT has been a, a, a place where uh, there is a, uh, first of all, the, there are very, very low boundaries. So, uh, you know, in, in uh, when I was at the University of Toronto, uh, I was in the School of Engineering, I was in the Department of Metallurgy, and um, the, the notion that uh, somebody would, would work with uh, a colleague in uh, the Department of Chemistry, the Department of Chemistry was in the School of Science, and and you know, but this is a different department. It's a different school, and you know, there were sort of silos. People people work within their own bounds, and so on. I got I got to MIT, and people people work with anybody. Um, and this is going back to 1977 when I was there as a postdoc. So I hired on in '78, and so it was very very fluid. Um, so that, that, that many other things. Everybody had to teach. So there was no no specialty of, of research faculty and and so on and, and I maintain that many of the ideas that I've developed uh, are the result of the fact that uh, I was I was teaching all the time and and as a teacher I had to take ideas and, and break them down into their their uh, uh, bite sized pieces so that the trajectory of the first time learner would be uh, correct. And in doing so, I, I had to challenge my own sort of take it for granted uh, understanding as opposed to deep understanding. Um, and plus the questions you would get from young people learning this for the first time, you would you know, uh, utter the, the, the whatever the uh, pat explanation is. And someone asked you this question and just blow the explanation away. And you say, no, I, I guess that wasn't exactly correct. Um, let me get back to you on that. And and so all of that, it, it's all 
working in, in concert to, to develop your mind. Um, and, you know, the students, the students there are, are really very high functioning. Um, so uh, that, th those are, those are all, all pieces of it. Um, I love that idea of breaking things into bite-sized pieces. I mean, the, the best way to learn is to teach, right? And, and, and the fact that you're kind of reducing things to first principles is allowing and, and, and seeding your mind to come up with original ideas based on first principles, I think is, is really inspiring. Well, it's, it's, it's worked for me. I mean, I, I, I did not invent liquid metal battery by going to advanced uh, uh, mathematical modeling that, that, that is now available to us thanks to the advances in computation. I invented the liquid metal battery with uh, the, the principles that I used to, uh, um, to teach first year uh, general chemistry. And um, if, if you have a deep understanding of, of um, how elements react with each other, you can conceive of batteries. You don't, you don't need density functional theory to do that. It's extremely inspiring. And, and so if we think about even the liquid metal battery and, and AMBRI, or what is now AMBRI, um, going back to MIT, it, it sounded like they had seed funds that paid for some of these prototypes, um, which, you know, I, I other research institutions have these, and I think MIT was probably an original leader in this. Um, can you talk about the importance of that and, and, and you know, or, or, or what it meant to developing the technology beyond the lab scale? Yeah, so um, there was, uh, there was a, a fund that had been uh, uh, actually created by the generosity of a donor, uh, Desh Deshmande, and uh, I, I can't remember when he, when he started that fund, it was in the early 2000s, and um, uh, one of my, uh, the, the first student that worked on the liquid metal battery um, was, was supported by uh, some seed funds from that uh, uh, center, and uh, we got our first uh, very, very crude uh, data based on uh, experiments that were funded by this uh, seed grant. And so at the time when I applied for the uh, big grant from uh, ARPA-E, I had those data in hand. And uh, I believe that the, the, the liquid metal battery, as I presented it in that proposal to ARPA-E, was so radical that I, my fear is that it wouldn't have been funded were it not for the fact that we already had some uh, early data. So there's no question that having this kind of, I like to call it mad money, that, um, you know, you're, you're, we're talking about uh, $50,000, $100,000. Uh, these are not princely sums, but um, without them, uh, you just don't have credibility on really far out ideas. So that was absolutely a critical component for, for liquid metal battery. And, and likewise on, uh, on the molten oxide electrolysis. I had funding from the Deshpande Center in the early days of uh, molten oxide electrolysis. And ultimately that led to Boston Metal and uh, the, a really credible way to, to make steel without uh, uh, CO2 emissions. So this, this money is, uh, it, it's really critical. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up Molten Oxide Electrolysis, this company, Boston Metal. Um, I mean, even they're, they're, they're a startup and, and this was something you invented in like 2006, I think. So even like 15 years ago, potentially, is that correct? Actually, uh, it's, it's partly correct. I, I started working on Molten Oxide Electrolysis in the, in the late 80s. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, I, I really started, uh, you know, getting a research uh, funding probably probably in the 90s. Um, 
because you know th this was this was related to uh, extractive metallurgy, and in the late '80s, the federal government closed down the U.S. Bureau of Mines, so that that was the natural home for for research sponsorship of uh, uh, things that would pertain to uh, uh, extractive metallurgy. And so you know, and 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 metallurgy in those days was viewed as this is this is old stuff. And the National Science Foundation wouldn't touch this. National Science Foundation, as the name implies, is science. There's no there's no engineering foundation. Engineering has to you know tuck in to the National Science Foundation. And uh, in in the area of material science, they were going after new materials as they should. I, I, but the, the, the unintended consequence of chasing after uh, carbon nanotubes and uh, uh, all sorts of new new materials is that the the, the old stuff uh, is going to get marginalized or just shut up. And you could say, well, you know, this is mature. But you know, back to the beginning of our conversation about, you know, by the late '80s, all of the industrial labs were pretty much decimated. So who's going to invent carbon-free steel making? If the if the National Science Foundation is going to sponsor research in this area, and the steel industry has lost its capabilities to to innovate at the process level, and meanwhile you've got this environmental imperative. You know, if it weren't for an environmental imperative, we'd say we've optimized. We we now make steel so well. Uh, why, why do we have to innovate? And the answer is CO2 emissions. So, um, yeah, it's uh, so I started back in the '90s, and I got a little bit of funding here and there for maybe three years, then then no renewals. There was one moment there in the early 90s from the National Science Foundation are actually looking at some, uh, I can't remember what the nature of the, the, the program was, but there, there was a contract monitor there who took an interest in what I was doing and I got funded there and then, then it went dormant. And then I got funding from NASA because NASA was interested in uh, developing a technology that could generate oxygen uh, on the moon using lunar resources. And so I, I, I morphed it in from molten oxide electrolysis to molten regolith electrolysis. Regolith is the, is the dusty, powdery surface of the moon. Uh, it's, it's basically soil, but it doesn't have any organic in it, so you don't call it soil, it's regolith. And um, so it, that got some funding. And then, and then there was a moment in, in the early 2000s when uh, the DOE, uh, in partnership with the uh, uh, American Iron and Steel Institute, said, "Okay, well, we'll take a look at this thing because th th they were they were really really uh, not keen to start looking at climate change mitigation uh, technology." But uh, I got funded on that piece by piece, and eventually got to the point where. Um, I was giving a talk. It was a Forrest Gump moment. I was giving a talk at a, a, a symposium in honor of a professor from the University of Cambridge, who I think it was his 70th birthday or something like this. And there was a person in the audience. He was a, a Brazilian who had made money in, uh, in minerals. And he heard me talk about monoxide electrolysis. And he approached me and he said, uh, let's go for coffee. And coffee became dinner. And, so what would it cost to uh, to uh, commercialize this? I said, well, we could start with five million dollars and see what we can do with it in five years. And uh, he said, okay, let's do it. So that's that's how the uh, forerunner of Boston Metal started around 2012, something like that. So it's a long journey. Yeah, no kidding. And 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 do you know you get. Grants. I mean, I, I know any good researcher is, is 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 you know mostly also a pro in 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 getting grants. Uh, do do a lot of these? Do they come from the TTO? I mean, I'd like to hear about your relationship with the tech transfer, or the T TLO. I think it's called at MIT. 
Um, but also maybe you could touch on, you know, how you are so effective at uh, winning grants. I mean, it, 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 do you have any idea what percentage you apply to that you don't win? Or I, I'd love to hear about it, about that in any way. Oh, the, everything depends on uh, the instant circumstances. I mean, uh, I was, I think it's some of it is just luck uh, because the success rate in, in the physical sciences and engineering is really low compared to life sciences. Uh, I remember reading, I don't know, four or five years ago, something in the New York Times, somebody was saying, yeah, it's getting really tough in the life sciences. And, I mean, fewer than one in three proposals is funded. I said, one in three? So uh, to give you an example for the first round ARPA-E, um, there were 3,700 white papers. And of those 350, less than 10% were invited to submit full proposals. And there were 37 awards. Well, by my math, uh, 37 over 3,700, that's 1%. 1% success rate. Um, and by the way, no renewals were allowed. So, you know, that, that's another interesting piece. Let's say the, the, the award is for three years. Well, these days it's taking four and a half, five and a half years to get a PhD. So you imagine a student is three years into his or her PhD and the professor doesn't get renewed. Now what? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's brinksmanship all, all the time. It's brinksmanship. And so you're constantly on the lookout for new sources of, of funding. That's correct. And, and, uh, okay. And, and, and so, so I'm, I assume, I guess that takes probably quite a bit of your time. Um, does the TTO help in any way, or they don't really touch this this funding thing? They're more mostly on the commercialization and sponsored research side of things. That's correct. Uh, the the technology licensing office uh, handles uh, the um, application for uh, patents and the licensing of of technology. Um, they, they do not fund uh, research. No, but I mean to say, like, do they help facilitate sponsored research in any way from industry? No, they're, they're really focused on uh, getting the technology out of the file cabinet and into, into practice because they, they have a fiduciary responsibility to, to the university. They, they want to turn uh, technology into a revenue stream. So the revenue stream will then go to the university. And then maybe there's some uh, tortuous path by which some of that ends up in uh, some on-campus uh, seed funding, but um, it, it, it would fund more likely the, the infrastructure of the university because uh, the, the, the sum of tuition and, and uh, overhead uh, doesn't pay for the full cost of, of running the university. So, by having a, a rich revenue stream coming from the inventions of the of the students and the faculty, that helps uh, keep the university running. Uh, but the, but uh, there there isn't a, a direct line of sight from uh, the TLO and uh, and sponsorship. And you know, pe people uh, let's let's say corporate entities that are going to the TLO, they're not going to the TLO to say. Hey, what's going on at the university? We'd like to sponsor something. Uh, no, they're going to the TLO because they're saying we're looking for um, new technology in such and such a sector. So yeah, I mean, I, I asked just because I'm interested in the in the mechanics of all of this. There there is no systemized way for um, or or any kind of platform or marketplace or anything like that for facilitating sponsored research between what's going on in your lab and any industry that might be interested in, in, in doing, you know, in, in, in sponsoring it? Well, actually there is, there is the uh, industrial liaison program, which was founded probably around 1950. It was, it was the first of its kind. 
And um, so the, the industrial liaison program has a, a staff of people that uh, make it their business to know uh, what the faculty are doing. They're divided, the, the, the staff are divided by um, field, of, uh, field of knowledge. And so th th there are people at uh, the ILP who, who uh, make it their business to be familiar with uh, current research that's, that's going on. And the faculty know that the ILP exists. So, so we would communicate with our uh, ILP uh, staff member so that he or she knows what we're doing. And then on the flip side, uh, companies from all over the world choose to become members of the ILP. And so uh, say, and then not just in the United States, people from all over the world. And um, so let's say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a metals company and uh, I'm interested in uh, uh, alloy development. So I could, you know, granted we have, the, we have this thing called the internet, the World Wide Web and so on. Uh, but to be quite honest, uh, people, people in, in the research arena are, aren't necessarily going to put their, their absolutely hottest, most recent ideas uh, on display. Um, so you could find out who's working on alloy development, for example, but you're not going to find out what, what the latest idea is that that person is working on. But through the ILP, you can get introduced and then you know have a, have meetings and so on. And uh, by by connections through the ILP, I've I've enjoyed industrial sponsorship on uh, uh, numerous occasions, and um, it works both ways because through the industrial sponsorship, I got to visit uh, the companies because if, if I happen to be in Europe and I. I'm going to be in France, so I can go and visit the big French metals company and actually give a talk at their headquarters, but then go to one of their smelters. And, you know, I, I was in the foothills of the Pyrenees visiting a magnesium smelter that uses a technology totally different from what is used in the United States. There's no way I could have gotten in there as a, as a young assistant professor, but for the fact that I, I was introduced through the MIT industrial liaison program. So, uh, and, that, and, that, and that not only uh, cultivates the, uh, the research, but it informs me now when I'm teaching. I mean, can you imagine being taught metallurgy by a professor who's never been to a smelter? Everything the professor knows, uh, he or she got by reading books. Well, that's right. fine. That's fine, but you know, to, to say, you know, I was there. I visited Bechinet in uh, Marignac. I, I, I know what this process looks like. I, I visited Reynolds in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. You know, so, you know, it's, you, you speak with, uh, you know, having been there. I love that. And, and, and so I, I want to be respectful of your time. I have a few more questions I'll try to get in within, within the next few minutes. Do you, um, do you ever have any designs on leading one of these spinoffs? I know you're sitting at the Avanti headquarters right now, or do you ever think about becoming the CTO or CEO of these initiatives? No, because I've got too many other ideas. So I, uh -huh. want, to get the, I want to get them out the door, launch them, uh, empower the people, and then get on to the next idea. I, it's, it's, if I were out of ideas, which say, all right, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this one, but I'm not. I got other ideas. I, it hasn't I, happened. I, I can't wait to get a Avanti on its way because I've got uh, there's, there's there's some others. And, and, and how do you? Yeah. How, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I appreciate. I appreciate. I, I keep saying what you were gonna say about no, other I, ideas. I have other ideas. I was going to tell you what they are, but I decided no. I'm not going to uh -huh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yes, this is a uh, public, a publicly available podcast. Maybe you know later we'll do another episode and we can talk about future ideas. Um, and how do you know when to step away from Avanti? Um, when, not, I, when I when it's yeah. when it's uh, when it's properly funded, uh, it's properly resourced. 
when it's properly resourced. So that means it has the money to, to uh, go on its uh, route and, and it's got the staff. And when I see I've got surrogates that are uh, perfectly capable, I mean, I'm still around and they can, they can uh, pay me for you know, scientific advice and stuff like that. But I have the humility to know that I can do things in the uh, technical arena but I don't, I don't fancy myself as a, as a business strategist. So, um, you know, as I said before, a man's got to know his limitations. And, and um, so I, I, play, I play to my strengths and, and don't get in the way. And if you had to think about advice that you would give to young grad students, scientists, postdocs, researchers, entrepreneurs, that are looking to um, do meaningful work and, you know, fix this environmental imperative. Uh, what would you say to them? Give me about anything. I'd say uh, uh, just get technically literate um, and and then dive in. Uh, choose choose the problems that uh, inspire you, that you feel passionate about solving, and. Uh, you know, harness the intellectual horsepower of your brain and, uh, and uh, get on the journey. And what would you tell the young Donald Sal, Sa, uh, the, what, what would you tell yourself, uh, the young Donald Sadaway, when you were leaving your PhD or in your postdoc, just to, at the beginning of your kind of career trajectory? Um, what would you do differently? What would you tell yourself? Anything on that? Uh, well, if I knew then what I know now, it, it would have been a, a meteoric trajectory, but uh, uh, I think it was, um, if, if I had something to do over again, uh, it would be to, uh, to follow my instincts and, and uh, grant myself permission to be, uh, to be uh, audacious and, and take on big problems. Uh, but in the early days, I was, I was really um, a really good boy uh, who, who always painted within the lines and did everything correctly so as to uh, make sure that I uh, achieved tenure and, and so on. Um, but uh, I think, you know, being willing to take risks and, uh, and that, that means intellectual risks. Uh, it would have been, that would have accelerated the, the progress. But, but otherwise, I was, I was really lucky that uh, I, I, I followed people. I became an electrochemist because there was somebody at the University of Toronto in the, in the metallurgy department. Uh, this person, I said, uh, I like this person. I don't, I mean, I, I want him as a friend or anything like that, but I, I, I like the way he thinks and I like the way he conducts himself. So it was also, it was both his character and, and his, the way his mind worked. He taught thermodynamics and, uh, but his research was in um, high temperature, non-aqueous electrochemistry. If he'd been a ceramist, I would, probably would have been a ceramist today, but he was an electrochemist. And uh, that was my good fortune. And then I, then I chose to come to MIT and postdoc with somebody else who was, uh, again, it was a, I chose the person. And uh, by choosing the, the people and learning so much from them, um, both in their, uh, the way they went about it, the person at MIT was Julian Zakelli. Um, he was involved in transport phenomena, but he was very, this is, 1970s, it was being quoted in, in the press about uh, the, the, the connection between the, the science and, and the uh, economy and, and so on. And so I saw the societal involvement. And um, uh, those, those are formative experiences that uh, helped move me along. So, uh, you know, make, don't, don't work on something because you think it's in vogue, but you don't, you really don't like it, but you've heard that um, 
you know, graphene is really hot right now, but you really don't like graphene. It doesn't really excite you. So what are you doing that for? You know, just work on something that excites you. Well, that's good advice. Work on something that excites you. Follow good people. I'm sure there's a bunch of great people that followed you. Or it's obvious that we can see. And so um, I think it's a great place to, to end. Professor Donald Sadaway, thank you. Um, is there a place where people can find you that, that you prefer? LinkedIn, Twitter, anything like that? Or your website, I guess, as well? All, all of the above. You can find me LinkedIn, you can find me Twitter. Uh, you can find me at MIT if you can get my email address. It's, uh, it's no secret. So just reach out. Excellent. Um, Professor Donald Sadaway, thank you very much for joining us. Everyone visit bountiful.work to get early access to our platform. Um, thanks again, Professor, for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good luck. Thanks for listening. But now we need your help. We're building a community of scientists, students, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors to commercialize meaningful technology and research. Join us at Bountiful.Work today to find opportunities and realize your power to save the world.